media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Yeah, when we started that last song, Are You Washing the Blood? I, I pastored in, uh, during seminary, I pastored in Oklahoma. And uh, uh, any people from Oklahoma here? Okay, so I can say this. Oklahoma is a strange place. Uh, I mean, there, there's like conservatism, and then there's Oklahoma. And it's all kind of a whole different place. In our little country church, And the, we sang that song a lot. It was one of their favorites. Uh, except it was a little bit different. Are you washed in the blood? And really what didn't come out, are you washed in the blood? It was more of a washed and uh, but they love that. So this morning, as we open up to Psalms 51, this is the the final uh, one. And I, I wish that in a way that it would kind of go on because I truly believe that this is one of the most important, uh, if you want to say, disciplines, understandings, maturities in our Christian life. And repentance very much speaks towards salvation and coming to understanding the offer of Christ. But even after salvation, as in our sanctification. As we begin to talk about how do we grow in Christ, we see the important role that repentance has there. And last week we ended with uh, the heavy subject of how true biblical repentance leads to restoration. First and foremost, uh, by God's grace and by his grace, he gives us forgiveness and he restores our right, us into a right relationship with him through the work of Jesus Christ. But then we talked about, as David went on and began to talk about uh, you know, this turn that comes, a confession of sin and this sorrow for sin and all this, that now he asks for his ministry back. He asks for his voice back. He talks about praising God. And so we begin to see this turn and we begin to see what I'm going to turn today, what the Bible, John the Baptist would call the fruit of repentance. Where does repentance lead in the believer's life? What is it that we expect? And one of the things that we began to see last week is that as David talked about, okay, God, I know you've made this relationship right, but now I'm praying that you will make these relationships right. And we ended with, you know, talking about, you know, like marriage and if there's been uh, adultery. And we talked, we use that just as an example, but really it could apply to anything in our lives when there's been a brokenness in relationship. And then oftentimes I realize that it's never 100% one person's fault and 0% somebody else's fault. But a lot of times uh, in counseling, I talk about the offender and the offended. And we've probably been on both sides of that. There's been times that we've been the offender. And in repentance, we wanted restoration of that relationship with a family member. It could be a spouse. It could be a coworker. It could be somebody in the church. And then there, with the offender, there's usually the offended, the one that maybe the sin was against. And so we began to talk about that. And one of the things that, you know, I, I know just through counseling all these years, that is a kind of a, a, a true reservation for a lot of people when it comes to biblical repentance and, and restoring and being reconciled into a right relationship with another person who has offended them is how do I know that they're really honest? How do, how do we know that they truly have repented? I mean, is that fair game, guys? Like even in marriage? When there's benefits? How, how do I know? I want to. I, I want to forgive. I want restoration. But God, how do I know that they really mean it? I mean, is it possible that somebody would say, well, you know, God's forgiven me, and, and now, you know, as a Christian, you're expected to forgive me too. Is that possible for that to happen in a marriage? 
happen in a family situation, happen even in a church situation, that somebody would say these right things about what God has done and the grace and the forgiveness that he has done and then use that to expect grace and forgiveness from you. Actually happens a lot. Last week I used the illustration about a wooden bridge that that wooden bridge is a relationship that each one of those planks, when there's a fence, especially like if there was adultery or there's some other grievous sin that one person would have against the other that has affected another's life, that whole bridge blows up. And even if they want restoration of that marriage, even if they want restoration of that family relationship or that co-worker or that church relationship, usually here's what happens by human nature. By human nature. Talking about just how we would act out in our own nature. Oftentimes the offender, after having a series of good weeks, good days, maybe good months, wants to build back the entire bridge. I've been good. Almost like a little kid. And that husband, that family member, that church member, that co-worker... uh, Why are you still holding out? Why are we not restored in right relationship? Because I've been good lately. If you talk to the one that we're calling the offended, it's because there's a trust issue. That heart has been so hurt that they're afraid to put down even that first plank. Does that make sense to you by human nature? That's the reality. And anybody who has ever done counseling and everybody who has, uh, you know, been in that field realizes those are some of the dynamics that we work with. Now, the Bible says now that because of Christ, we can have forgiveness and that ultimately the fruit of repentance is as we confess, as we feel sorrow for our sins, as we begin to try to restore relationships. First and foremost, we restored that relationship, as David said, against you, against you only have I sinned, God. But now as we get to the end of Psalm 51, we see that he wants to restore these relationships. And that's really a difficult part because we know what the Bible says. We also know that we have to deal with this human thing called human nature. Do you know that they've done scientific experiments even with frogs? And not equating your brain with a frog brain, okay? Unless it applies. But, you know, you can put a bumblebee or a bee into a container with a frog, and that frog will say, that looks like dinner, and go and try to get that frog and get stung. And what does the frog do afterwards? Leaves the bee alone. And so here's this little frog brain that learns, wow, I got hurt when I tried to eat that. So I'm going to look for something else. And here's our brain and our nature. And all of a sudden when we get hurt, there's this kind of almost this automatic, just out of defense, out of trying to survive, that we go, okay, I'm not going to build back that bridge yet. I'm very, very careful of how I build back because I've been burned before. And especially if you've been burned two or three or five or six and ten times. Well, does that put all of this biblical restoration and reconciliation out the door? No. It just means that we have to begin to identify what is biblical. Has there been true repentance? Do you think that you have enough wits? Do you think you have enough detection ability in your own mind 
to know when somebody is being sincerely repentant or not? I think we can begin to look at some, you know, they said they were sorry, and we would start to say, okay, have they changed their ways? Have they done this? But really, honestly, guys, God can make instantaneous reconciliation because God knows the heart. And when there's repentance, because of the work of Christ, restoration can come instantly because God already knows if there truly is sorrow in that heart. You and I, we have a little bit harder time detecting. And so it's very natural that sometimes we would hold back. Well, I mention all that because, number one, that's a heavy subject. It's a real subject. It's an application of this text. And because David begins to address that in the final verses of this passage. Look at verse 16. And just to give you kind of a guide as we read that, he's talking about genuine repentance and and the difference between genuine biblical repentance and simply going through religious activity. Verse 16, for you do not, and he's talking to God, for God, you do not deny in sacrifice or I would give it. You do not, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Now, two points to remember here. This is Old Testament. So what system are they under? The people of God, the sacrificial system. Who set that up? The people or God? God did. And it's a pre-picture of Christ. It's a pre-picture that right now there's a covering of your sin. One day there's going to be an atonement for your sin. And this is the picture that we see in the Old Testament. And so people would come and they would bring a a lamb, a bird, you know, something. And there would be a blood sacrifice. Again, all pointing ultimately to the Lamb of God. But right now they're in this Old Testament system. And so David says something kind of strange here. You will not delight in sacrifice or I would get it, you are not pleased with the burnt offering. Why would he say that when God's the one who's established this? Well, the reason why he's saying it is found out in verse 17. Look what it says. The sacrifices of God are a a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David is making a distinction between religious activity and heart change. Would you agree this morning that sometimes we are well rehearsed in religious activity and sometimes we want to kind of use that instead of change lives and hearts and minds? Okay, I'll just start going to church more. It's always amazing to me. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time and you see, you know, a couple or a family and they're there for like six or seven, eight straight weeks and there's kind of disruption in their house. And maybe mom and dad kind of restored that relationship and that I don't see them for three or four years. But man, they, they're going to go through this. You know, we need God. And I'm appreciative that they're in church when they're hurting like that. But will religious activity, will just attending church by itself change the situation of one's heart and one's mind? Maybe certainly would expose us if they're preaching biblically to godly truth and you've made yourself available for the spirit to move. But there's no guarantee that just because you warm a seat in a church that all of a sudden God says, okay, we're back on good terms. It's a matter of the heart. David knew that. And so that's why David says the sacrifices of the broken spirit is what we're looking for. 
He said, that, you know, even though he's the one, I mean, think about it. In his wealth, how many animal sacrifices could David have given? Give me a number. Thousand, thousands of thousands, if you want. He was a wealthy man. He's the king. So if he said, okay, I know most of the time people bring a bird or a lamb or maybe even a bull. I'm bringing a thousand bulls, 5,000 lambs, and about 20,000 birds. Would that on the exterior be impressive? And yet he said, you're not pleased with that God. The very system that God set up, he says, you're not pleased with it if it's not a changed heart. The value, what you value, God, is that you're pointing to what Christ is going to do for us one day. You're, you're giving us a picture of ultimately what you and you alone can solve. And, and so you're, you're leading us to this Lamb of God eventually. And yet this is a be, it's supposed to be a meaningful part of our lives, but only as it brings about a change of mind and heart. David is not trashing the sacrificial system that God set up. He's simply admitting that, humanly speaking, it can be played. Can the church, can the things of God, can religious activity be played? Yeah. question is, have you ever played them? Have you ever played it yourself in your relationship with the Holy God? My hand would go up. It can be down to something as simple as, well, God, you know, I had my quiet time five times this week. Certainly that counts for something. But somehow we begin to point at religious activity, even good activities, like Bible study and church attendance and kindness and morality, that somehow that has kind of gained us approval from God. You know how we got approval from God? Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, guys. That's how we got approval from God. Now, does that mean that religious activity like Bible study and being in church and part of a community of believers and all that is is bad? No. He's not trashing the system. He's just admitting that in our human nature, we can play the system. And most of us have to some degree. The other part of that is, let's go back to offender, offended. Have you ever been the offended and somebody comes to you and you don't know if they're just playing the system and all the, the, the right cards, the Bible cards, the Christian cards, the, the Jesus card. And if there's really authenticity, David addresses that. He said, God, if it was sacrifices, I could give thousands. But that's not what you're looking for. If it was, he, he said, I, I would do that. I mean, look at verse 16. He says, I would do that if that's what you're looking for. But that's not what you're looking for. You're the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. I think we would do well to know what is a broken spirit. What is a contrite heart? What does he mean by that? So let's look at first at that first term of broken spirit. The literal Hebrew word means to be shattered. You take a bowl, a fragile bowl, you drop it on the floor. And it shatters not into four pieces, but 4,000. You know, even the little splinters that come off, you know, the, the little pieces. And so it's impossible to put back together. This isn't something that just broke into two and you're going super glue. 
Now the word here means shattered. It also has the emphasis on that it's being broken by a great force. That it's not only shattered, but that, that there's this force that's breaking it. And so biblically speaking, a broken spirit is a spirit of two things. A spirit of surrender and submission. Not excuse. Well, if he wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done that. Well, if if my boss wasn't this way, I wouldn't have been tempted to do this. No, true spiritual brokenness, a broken heart, a broken spirit here is one where we are surrendering, we're submissive. So David tells us that God delights not in religious activity just for the sake of activity, but rather true brokenness and surrender to him. What might that look like? Let me give you four examples. And I know our nature is that we're going to take it to somebody else since we're the offended and take it to our offender and put this on them. I understand that. But on these four things that we begin to look at, test yourself first. Okay, God, is, is this my heart? Because what you, what you are saying that you're desiring here is a broken spirit, this contrite heart. What does that look like in real life? Number one, humility rather than pride. Humility rather than pride. Have you ever had somebody demand that you forgive them and use the Bible as the source of their... The Bible says that you need to forgive everything. There's a sense of pride with that, guys. There's not a sense of humility with that. You can quote Scripture, but you can quote Scripture incorrectly. So what David does here is, what does a broken spirit look like? Number one, it's humility rather than pride. Number two, sorrow rather than excuse. You feel the weight of your sin. You're not looking for, well, if you wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have said this. That's not a broken spirit. That's an accusing spirit. That's trying to wiggle out of your own responsibilities in the matter. And so a broken spirit, as it would be lived out, would be one of sorrow over our sins instead of excuse. Third thing, surrender, rather than demanding our rights. Within each one of our human natures is the sense well, you don't have the right to do this. You invaded my rights. Long before there was a bill of rights, long before there was a political sense of rights, we had our own human nature sense of rights. And I promise you, we use that in marriage. We use that in family situations. We use that in work situations. We can even use that in church situations. Well, that just wasn't fair. That wasn't right. True brokenness. Biblical repentance, a broken spirit, we come with a flag of, a white flag of surrender. And we're surrendering first and foremost to holy God, but even bringing that and the overflow of that into our relationships that are there horizontally. The last thing, and it doesn't mean we could go on with a list of 20 things, but submission rather than demands. Again, when I just asked a while ago, has anybody demanded that you forgive them in a biblical context of you're supposed to forgive as you've been forgiven? A lot of you began to shake your heads. I could tell that some of you have been there. That's not what this is. That's not a broken spirit. 
broken spirit is amazed at God's grace. A broken spirit is amazed that, that there could actually be restoration after there's been sin or failure. So David says, look, I could give you a thousand sacrifices. I could give you 10,000 sacrifices. There could be blood all over the place. And that wouldn't satisfy you, God, even though that's your system as a pre-picture of what the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus, would do one day. God, you won't be satisfied. What are you satisfied with? What is it that you desire? A, A broken spirit. And then he adds there, a broken and contrite heart. The word almost, the word broken and contrite are almost the same. They're different Hebrew words, but they almost mean the same. Again, it means broken under pressure, but it means shaped by force. Have you ever taken, uh, like if you took some uh, thin metal and you took a hammer and you began to beat that thin metal with hammer, what's going to happen? You're going to be able to shape it. Let's say that you wanted to, to make a shape like this. You could take a flat piece of thin metal, and you can start beating it to a point where you can kind of get a bowl effect to it, right? That's what this word means. God, what you want is a contrite heart. You want a heart that's been shaped by your work, by your grace. This heart is truly broken for the sorrow of sin, broken by grace and the love that another would forgive. This brokenness is not expecting that they are owed forgiveness. They are thankful that forgiveness would ever be granted. See, that's the difference between the man and the true thankfulness that God would forgive. The the fact is, this truth can be seen in the previous psalm. If you go back to Psalm 50, I'm not going to do the whole Psalm 50. It's taken us 12 weeks to do Psalm 51. Okay, so I'm not going to, and, and so forgive me for, this is going to be a little bit out of context, only because we don't have time to go verse 1 all the way through the end. But basically what Psalms 50 was talking about, is the same thing that David's talking about here. He's talking about how religious activity and even the sacrifices are not what God really wants. And he takes, the, the writer of Psalm 50 takes on the voice of God. In other words, says, okay, God says this. Look at Psalms 50, starting with verse 7. We're going to read really kind of fast and go through a lot of verses, but I want you to see what he says about the inadequacy of just going through the emptiness of religious activity and then what he's headed to when he talks about a heart or a mind of thanksgiving. Start in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is... He said, you think you gave that lamb? It's mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I own them. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world its fullness is mine. So God is saying, okay, I'm not needy. (laughs) I own it all. Now look at verses 13 through 15. And look at how he brings in this attitude of thankfulness. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? 
Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. He said, when you have the spirit of thanksgiving, when you truly appreciate forgiveness and grace and mercy, he said, then I'm going to deliver you. Folks, God is not a stingy God. He's not stingy of his grace. But he does not give cheap grace. He doesn't give grace just because of religious activity. God's grace comes from the expense of his own son. He takes it really personally, guys. So it's not just, okay, I sat in church for three straight weeks, God. True biblical repentance is going to produce a true attitude of thankfulness for that forgiveness, for that grace and mercy. Not an attitude of expectation or personal rights. No demands there. No, you need to forgive me because you say you're a Christian. God says to forgive as you're forgiven. Folks, it's just a wrong attitude. It's not a wrong principle. The Bible does say that I am to forgive as I have been forgiven. Guess what that includes? Everything. So the truth isn't wrong. It's the use of that truth. Can we use the precious word of God to beat people up? To not have a redeeming end in mind happens all the time, guys. Happens all the time. Misusing the word of God as a weapon against somebody else rather than a truth that breaks our own heart and creates us a broken spirit and a contrite heart. A heart that then will turn to thanksgiving. And true thankfulness for forgiveness and grace which happens internally, will eventually, part of the fruit is, then it's going to have an exterior effect. This whole mindset of God working from the outside in is really a false thing. And again, I've shared this with you before. A lot of us that grew up in the 60s and 70s, that is in the 1960s and the 1970s, that, that was kind of the practice of a lot of churches. Cut your hair, lengthen your skirts, and burn your records. And you you do those things, you do these exterior things, and then there's hope for you. Folks, that's not the, the gospel. We contribute nothing. Christ died in our place. And he took the hardest stone, and he makes it into a heart of flesh. He does this so that we now can go and live out this gospel life. An outside in, a legalistic kind of outside in, a kind of religious activity is going to change the heart is the exact opposite of what we see displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so David reiterates that here. We often think that we can do things externally to produce inward change, but that assumes that the power is in us to change. And I, how's that power working out for you guys? How did it work out for David? Was David described as a man after God's own laws and morality or a man after God's own heart? Because David discovered the hard way. 
that it was heart change and what God did on the inside to produce an outward change. So what is the fruit of repentance? It's a broken and contrite heart. It's seeing the heaviness of our sins. Let me, get, let me end this whole series this morning by giving you four things that we should see in ourselves when we truly have experienced, biblically speaking, the fullness of, of what God wants to do through his power when it comes to this whole idea of repentance. Number one, part of the fruit of biblical repentance is that we identify and hate sin more and more. More and more, we're just aware. Things before that we would just kind of excuse off to the side and say, you know, that's not really all that bad. A lot of people do that. But more and more, when there's true biblical repentance in our heart and our lives, and we're in right relationship with the Holy God, not just salvation-wise, made possible by Christ, but even in sanctification-wise, that is, walking in discipleship, that more and more we will be able to identify and hate sin more and more, not just the consequences of our sin. Do you see the difference there? I mean, a lot of us have had regret when you've had to face the consequences of your sin, right? Repentance is different from remorse and regret. Now, it went down the heart. And it's not just, man, I got sorry I'm caught. I could spend the next 30 years in prison. Number two, we humbly accept the consequences of our sin. We don't have to be happy about it. You go back to 2 Samuel, go back and read what we read early on about the context of this whole Psalm 51. And the prophet Nathan identifies David's sin. David begins to repent even in those initial stages against you. You alone have I sinned, God. And then, but the prophet Nathan is done. He said, David, this is going to cost you in the sense that there's going to be consequences. The very baby that uh, he and Bathsheba conceived there died. He said there's going to be disruption in your family for the length of your whole life. We talked about that last week. Okay, if God forgives, why doesn't he just take the consequences away? We don't find that anywhere in the Bible except for the consequences of a broken relationship with the Holy God and our eternal security. But I promise you today, guys, if I go out and rob a bank... But then tomorrow, after I'm called, say, well, you know, I asked for God forgive forgiveness. So, officer, I expect forgiveness from the system. Andy, is that going to go over? Probably not. We forgive you if you're truly repentant, but you're still going to be doing 10 years. Right down here, the small little place is your new place of, of residence. I can't find anywhere in the Bible. Now, does that mean that sometimes by God's grace and his mercy that that God does not give us the full effect or the consequences of our sins? Yes, grace and mercy. How many of you are a recipient of that you have not felt the full brunt of all of your sins? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, guys. It's not saying that this is not existent, but it's... uh, the more that we're repentant, we'll understand, hey, this is, 
this is kind of what I deserve. And so when consequences come, we're not blaming God. And we realize that grace has already been shown. Number three, we are broken of how our sin has hurt God and others. Not just our own hurt. Human nature, when there's hurt, even if you are the offender, what does it focus on your own nature? How you're hurt. I've heard it in counseling years and years. Yeah, but. And anything that follows a yeah, but is usually self-justification. <laughs> it's usually just, hey, but I'm hurt too. The true biblical repentance, one of the signs, the fruit of that repentance is, is that we're broken of how our sin has offended holy God and our need for Jesus Christ and also how it's offended others. And then last, this is where David was getting both in Psalm 50 and what we saw there at the end of Psalm 51. We are thankful for forgiveness and we begin to thirst for righteousness. Not just the avoidance of evil. There's two ways that you can live your Christian life. Two ways you can live out this part of sanctification. I'm going to avoid all the bad things and try to be a good person. Or you can thirst for righteousness. And there is a big difference. A lot of young Christians, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. That's good. That's great. What about thirsting for righteousness? Thirsting for those things that God says, this is what I make much of. So it's not just the avoidance of the bad, but it's now truly wanting to be holy as God is holy. Thirsting for those things that are of Christ. This is the fruit of biblical repentance. And and again, as we close this morning, I I know our nature is, okay, I'm going to take this test. (laughs) And see if this person who's offended me, if they truly, if they have the checklist here. Guys, start with yourself. Look at your own self. It's like, God, have you broken me? Do I have a broken and contrite spirit? Do I realize how my sin has offended you, my great need for Christ, and how it's offended others? God, have you given me a, a humility so that I'm not making demands of my rights? I'm not trying to make excuses so that when consequences of my sin come into my life, even after I've asked for forgiveness, that somehow I'm complaining to you, God. Let me see that you have already extended grace and mercy beyond belief. And God, will you give me a thirst for righteousness? Uh, not just a disdain for sin, that's part of it, but will you, will you give me a thirst for righteousness? This is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And I pray that that's what God will give us. And he's made it possible through the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you, we thank you. Father, in our own nature... Very much, we would want to, uh, to be able to satisfy you with, Father, just what we do. And yet, Father, our greatest need is not to start doing religious things, even if they're good things. Our greatest need, Father, is to run to the cross 
And Father, to acknowledge our great need for the work of Christ. Father, biblical repentance is impossible without the work of Christ. It has no standing, it has no ability, it has no power. And so, Father, will you free us from ourselves? Father, I pray for those in here this morning that in some situation, it could be in marriage, it could be in work, it could be at school, it could be in friendships, it could be extended family, it could be right here at church, Father, that if they have offended, that, Father, that that you would begin this process just as you did in David's heart. And that, Father, that they would begin to to get things right with you first and foremost. That you would extend them, Father, that opportunity to make things right with those that they have offended. And, Father, for the offended this morning, Father, for the ones that have been hurt by others, and they're holding on to that little plank of board, trying to build that back that bridge, Father, would you give them the spirit of discernment But, Father, would you also give them the hope that can be only found in the work of Christ? Father, it seems like that's all we say is the work of Christ, the work of Christ, the work of Christ. Because, Father, that's the only thing we have. It's the only hope we have. It's the only way, Father, that we can be right with you, a holy and righteous God. It's the only way that truly marriages can be restored, that relationships can be built again, that a church can thrive. Father, we are fallen people living in a fallen world and we will be offended. We will, Father, have things of offense against us, Father. Let us even then, Father, put our hope in you. So, Father, today we... we, End with this song. We sang it earlier, Father, of just going through the gospel. Living, you loved us. Dying, you saved us. Buried, you carried our sins far, far away. Rising, you justified. Freely and forever. And one day you're coming back, Father. Find us faithful in our walk. We love you and we thank you as we pray all this in the hope that is Christ Jesus. Amen. This message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast.